welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. The opioid epidemic has taken a deep toll on families throughout Appalachia. In Tennessee alone, more than 1,600 people died from drug overdoses in 2016. But three years ago, state leaders got together and developed a special program to unite faith-based communities in an effort to provide an educated, welcoming, and supportive place for individuals struggling with substance use disorder. Joining me today to talk about that unique program is Dr. Monty Burks. Dr. Burks is the State Director for Special Projects and Faith-Based Initiatives. And he's here today to share a little bit about this unique program that they've developed to certify recovery congregations. As we begin, Dr. Burks is introduced by President Trump during his speech at the National Drug Abuse and Heroin Summit in Atlanta last week. Here with us today is Dr. Monty Burks. Nineteen years ago, Monty turned his life around when two women of prayer from his hometown church helped him to get on a path to recover. Now Monty works for Tennessee's, what a great state, Department of Mental Health and is director of their faith-based recovery initiative. Monty, please come up and tell us a little bit about your work. In awe, honor, and humble. The opposite of addiction is relationship. That simple equation is what helped me find my freedom. Criminal justice intervention led me to treatment, which led me to recovery, which put me on this podium. I've been blessed to serve under Commissioner Williams and Commissioner Varney passed before. They took a chance on a broken and bruised person who had been touched by the system, but they knew that I had a purpose, and my purpose was to use the pain that I went through to help other people not have to go through the same thing that I went through. You see, recovery is real. We do recover. We do recover. The paradigm shifts with the faith community. Our governor, Bill Lee, supports the faith-based community being the catalyst to change, to control the narrative to explain how people in recovery can come back and be fruitful and change the paradigm themselves in their own communities. Employers trust the faith community. We go back to work, not just for a job, but for a career, so we can go back and lead as peers, so those who were behind us crying in the wilderness will have a second chance to stand before a podium like this and tell you that yes, recovery is real. We do recover. Secretary Azar, I want to thank you for your work with 
with HHS and the, and the Office of Faith Base with Shannon Royce and Heidi and they spread the word and the message about faith-based recovery and treatment across the state. Today, this is my pulpit and I have to say this. Someone in a program hears me right now and says, I can because you did. I can because he did. That's right. Yes, you can. Look in the mirror. There is your miracle. I want to thank you, Mr. President, for allowing me this space to stand beside you. I want to thank God for you and the First Lady and your support of the recovery community. Thank you. Ah, that's great, Mark. You know, he had this beautiful speech written down on his iPhone. This is the new way of doing it. And he never looked at it once. I want to share a little bit about my story uh, to kind of let the, uh, let the audience know uh, why I'm so passionate about working with our faith community and kind of what brought me here. Um, next month, uh, March the 3rd, I'll celebrate 19 years uh, free from the bondage that almost destroyed me and my family. Uh, and that bondage took the form of club drugs, ecstasy and ketamine, uh, to name a few. And, and, and basically what happened in my life is, you know, my story is, is no different than so many other people. Um, I grew up in a rural part of Tennessee, uh, moved away from my family to a, a, a bigger area, went to college. Uh, let myself get, I was introduced um, to a different lifestyle that I wasn't used to and, and I didn't have a sense of uh, community community and ended up becoming a full-blown full functioning addict um, and, and you know that man you know that being away from family being away from people uh, that you can talk to or better yet people that can see you when you don't see them um, opens the door uh, for things to happen to a person I was trying to figure, I couldn't figure out why I couldn't kick the addiction. I couldn't figure out uh, what, what, what the stronghold was, what, for what reason I couldn't get the clouds, the clouds to go you know, out of my mind. Um, and so I, I ran into someone when I was having lunch, I ran, I ran into a lady from one of the local ministries. Uh, I had no idea that she knew me, but she knew my mother. Uh, and she she spoke to me and she she touched me on my shoulder and she told me that you know she could see that I was struggling and that I needed to go you know she had a group that she wanted me to go to and you know I I, I expressed this before in the South uh, and I immediately uh, disagreed with her about me needing to go to a meeting I had no idea what she was talking about but I knew that I was just going to deny whatever she asked me because I didn't want her or anybody else to know kind of what I was going through well. She ended up being one of those real influential ladies who attend any kind of Sunday service at any kind of typical religious institution across the country. And she has just as much, if not more, power than any pastor or leadership than you'll ever run into. So what she did was she, in about three to five minutes, she had me in her car taking me to my first 12-step fellowship. And, man, I'll tell you what, Greg, I, you know, at first, uh, me trying to buck back and fight back, I was fighting her, but I wasn't really fighting her. I was fighting my addiction, fighting the conviction, knowing that I was in a situation. Somebody was there to help me. I knew I needed it, but I didn't really know how to tell her, yes, I need it, so I fought it. Well, I went into, the, uh, I went into my first room, and that's what it took for me. It took for me to see that there was a sense of community in in the you know this was right in the back of a church and um, I, I call it a mop closet, uh, but it was in a back room. Nobody really talked about it, but she knew about it because she had experience with it. And 
she got me there, and through that meeting, that sense of community opened the door for me to talk about something called treatment. In 2000, we didn't really talk about uh, treatment from substance abuse the same way we do now. It wasn't an open conversation. But one of the individuals in the meeting had expressed to me, you know, I, I had told him, I said, hey, man, I need more than this. This is a great place for me to start, but I'm still having trouble. Well, I ended up checking. I ended up finding out about a treatment program and going into 271 days of residential treatment. Uh, and it was what really changed my life. Uh, I went through a program that was long enough and structured enough to allow my brain time to heal. I had, I had in the process of my active using years, I caused myself a little bit of brain damage. Uh, you know, cognitive impairment comes with long-term uh, drug use. So in the process of becoming dependent, to addiction, uh, I had caused pathways to create in my brain that kept me on that bicycle. And the reason that I couldn't get off it was because my brain had been trained to want and do a certain thing. My chemistry had been changed. Uh, and, you know, now I was front and center with the, pro the, the, the potential of changing, but also uh, I had to go through withdrawals. Next, Dr. Burks talks about how he first got involved with recovery in the faith-based community. What had happened to me personally was I had went into clinical depression during withdrawals uh, from the substance use disorder. So the depression and substance use disorder were kind of working in tandem uh, to kind of keep me bogged down. Through the program, I learned I learned to understand what recovery support was, what structure support was, uh, what relapse triggers were, how to change my community. How you know, and I was blessed um, with having a great understanding of how to change my playground and playmates. Because one of the things is, is your brain. Once you retrain, let me say now, retrain the brain. Once you retrain the brain, there's still always that relapse trigger somewhere in there. So people ask themselves, you know, and I hear this a lot out in the community, is you know we. Hey, a person was in jail for 72 to 96 hours. You know, that, that should have been enough to straighten them out. Well, if they'd been using for about 12 to 15 days, that was nowhere near enough to even get the process started. It takes anywhere from 90 to 100 days just for a person's brain to start lighting back up to be rational so we can even entertain the healing process. So that's where I was. Yeah. Uh, the 271 days gave me more than enough time to reacclimate. It was almost like retraining myself to ride a bicycle, Greg. A natural, organic partner in the recovery process was the faith-based community. So I was tasked with um, recruiting and working with our faith community to get them organically involved, organic resources to them, as well as get them involved from an organic standpoint. And what I mean is if you have, you know, you have uh, communities that already provide resources, supplement those resources with other things that you can provide for them. And I'll give you an example is we went across the state, me and myself and Dr. Lloyd doing the mental health first aid and the brain training for our congregations and clergy around the state. That opened the door for them to connect with other congregations, even sometimes outside of their denomination and sometimes outside of their belief system, to start to address addiction and mental health in their community from a, from a very, very uh, entry-level point. To the, and that, that could mean just having an open door when someone says, hey, I have a mental health issue or I have a substance use issue or diagnosis, knowing where treatment programs are, knowing where peers are that could come in, provide services, up until we've got some of our congregations that have built full-fledged full nonprofits that are treatment and recovery support programs all together. 
So that's kind of how I, I was put into that position. My experience of navigating the system was perfect because I understood how to explain to congregations, number one, how difficult it is for a lay person to navigate a system to get someone into treatment and how important it is for leadership and congregations to know how to navigate that system. Because you and I both know that a person will tell clergy something that they won't tell their lawyer or their doctor. Yep. They'll give them the flat-out honest truth about what condition they're dealing with. Well, when our clergy are trained to know how to navigate the system, man, that changes the whole game. They are. They have a group of people who trust them for leadership and guidance. And, and with respect to that, I know the congreg- that, that the leadership is protective of their congregation. So them understanding how the behavioral health care system works, where the hospitals are, how the hospitals are, where the mental health agencies are, how the mental health agencies are, and then building their own unique relationships, it, it got our uh, faith community to to trust and build partnerships with the programs. So they knew when they sent somebody to a program, not only did they send them to a program, they knew where they were going. They knew what kind of treatment and recovery support services they were going to get. And our congregations knew that they had a pivotal role when the person came back to, is to be a strong, uh, trauma-informed uh, a recovery support community that really understood the whole continuum, and it's been an amazing process. Um, a lot of our a lot of our congregations have started to band together to build so they can have recovery meetings every night during the week for seven days in small communities, so they know that the individuals that come back have somewhere to go and fellowship each night, especially when it deals with recovery. Because you know, you and I both know that if an individual doesn't have somewhere to fellowship, they'll find somewhere. Yep. So they wanted to make sure our congregations banding together gave them opportunity seven days a week to go. And, and all the meetings aren't uh, necessarily uh, non-secular meetings. A lot of the meetings are different types of fellowships that are just there for support. Even something as simple as a 30-minute coffee meeting for people to come in and talk about what other resources in the community. Dr. Burks and I talked a little bit about how they begin engaging new congregations. When we go to the communities, when we reach out to the communities, connect with the communities, uh, we want to make sure first that we're culturally competent to what the community is, how the community looks, what the community's needs are. So when we go into a a community, we don't want to be intrusive or invasive. Uh, Obviously, I work um, as as a representative of the state of Tennessee. I have two programs that I oversee. So the programs that I oversee, their job has been for years to go into the community and understand the community's needs, uh, what the resources are, what the needs are, and kind of how to align things in the community to be able to be more uh, responsive to issues or to make sure that we, we can create uh, more opportunities for individuals who need help. We wanted to make sure we had a clear transition from whatever screening process was local to get people into services. Uh, we you know, want to you know, emphasize resources versus needs. We have 95 counties. All counties don't have the same uh, their resources may be the smaller the county, obviously the less the resources, uh, but they still have the same needs. So we wanted to make sure that we understood what was there, what was in the surrounding counties, and then what was in the surrounding region. And we wanted to be able to connect individuals struggling with addiction to all of those uh, resources that were appropriate for them. So we patent Turner um, around the state for about a year, meeting with our different communities, our different religious conferences, our different faiths, uh, and 
wanted to talk to them about what it would look like to come back and talk to their respective communities about building recovery support programs. And one of the things we had to do was at first, at first, the first thing was to build a trusting relationship with the faith community uh, because, one, I said it earlier, the faith community is an older community than anyone that you and I could ever work for. Uh, so you can't come in and tell somebody this is what you're going to do. With respect, we want to just be a resource to the community that already exists. And if they want to build a recovery support program from the ground up, let us help you with any, in any way we can, or at least be of an outside ancillary resource for that recovery program if we can. So in the, over, the, over the course of that next process, we started to provide community-based forums in each of our counties. We went from county to county and pulled in uh, resources from each one of the surrounding counties as well as in the county and did a Q&A session for clergy in the county, uh, leadership in the county. It, didn't, it wasn't necessarily all for faith-based. I'm a faith-based director, so a lot of the community there were the faith community. But we also brought in secular treatment and recovery programs to have panel discussions with our, with our clergy and leadership because we wanted to make sure that they could ask them their own personal questions about their programs. And I know you can understand the importance of that. You want to make sure that the pro, everybody's aligned in how they want to know how does this work what do you do when my people go to your program? You know, when do my people come back? What can we send our people when they go to your program? What we found was is that by doing that, the congregation started building their own relationships with the treatment and recovery programs. Uh, it gave us an opportunity to really be kind of a network linker, a resource uh, I don't know how you would say it, but we just pulled everybody together, put them in, put them in front of each other, had a cup of coffee and some water, and talked about how we could work together. And then that's when we, you know, that's when we had to. Then that's when we got to goal two, is we facilitated understanding of what treatment and recovery are, and. And and that and, and that goes into goal three as well, and by and increasing knowledge, we went into the communities with the mindset of let's talk about the difference between treatment and recovery. Let's understand what addiction is, and how the community can be very impactful, impactful, and influential uh, in in providing access to treatment. All of our communities are not going to start programs. I, I want to make sure I say that all our congregations do not have programs. A lot of them just refer people to other programs, but they know what the other programs are, how they function, how to get people there. They also know what the treat, how the treatment programs function, how to get people there, if they do or don't take insurance, what happens when a person is indigent. Um, and by doing this, we were able to spread awareness of, the, of, of our faith-based initiative and pull more congregations in. Our recovery courts, um, some states call them drug courts. We call them recovery courts. I think recovery sounds so much more powerful for an individual once they've transformed into something new. Um, but our recovery courts, once a person graduates from recovery court, then what? They go back to their community. Tennessee, and uh, along with many other, uh, all of the states in the country, every single one, we have a wealth of uh uh, religious and faith institutions that have uh, buildings that they could use to provide some type of recovery support service, even if that service is just answering the telephone when somebody calls and telling them about another service. So having our congregations available to be able to partner with uh, our 
treatment programs, or treatment court, our prevention coalitions, our substance abuse prevention coalitions. We have about 47 in our state. They all have a very strong faith sector. In some of the areas, some of the regions, we have built faith-based recovery networks with our prevention coalitions. What that means is our prevention coalitions have their regional meetings where they talk about prevention, primary prevention, working with uh, with their strategies. But they also invite different uh, faith and religious institutions to come in and to become part of that system. By and what what's happened is our faith community now they do prevention works in their congregations. Uh, and this has all been uh, the catalyst for all of this has been the peers in the community. The peers in the community look like the community. They sound like the community. And they've also not only represent their geographic community, they represent the recovery community. What Dr. Burks and his group have been able to accomplish since 2014 is really quite amazing. They've provided more than 3,200 Lifeline Recovery training events. They've conducted 101 faith based recovery support forums. They've referred more than 3,240 people to treatment, and they've established more than 421 new recovery meetings like NA and AA, and their total uh, congregations that they have developed, these, these brand new recovery congregations, has been more than 380 of them, and that's as of uh, last December. December of 2018. My, my team, they they don't just serve one county. They all serve uh, different areas. Like more, you know, they'll some of them serve uh, eight counties. Some serve 16. Um, but what they're able to see going amongst those, the counties are all connected. When they go two counties over and realize that something's not available in this county, they're able to reach back over to another county and build a collaboration amongst the counties to get services for people. So that's what I think is really powerful about this, the fact that you're going into a community, you're um, helping them to supercharge their programs for recovery, and then you're connecting these various communities that otherwise would have no connection whatsoever. You know what, man, and I'll tell you what, that one of the most, you know, I I say everything's amazing because I think Dr. Lloyd rubbed off on me. He he is a brother to me for uh, for life. We met on a recovery panel talking about this stuff when we were first tasked with trying to figure out how to change the paradigm and open the conversation. And what we found was we had all these wonderful programs and people that were operating in silos. And it wasn't intentional silos. It was just because of their geographic locations. So you had five counties with five programs, and each one of the programs, most of them didn't even know about each other. So when our peers came in, our peers actually were tasked with going from county to county with the prevention coalitions, doing a needs assessment in the community to figure out all of the resources, and boom, there it was. You have this kind of program and this kind of program and this kind of program. While they all three may be recovery support, they're all three a different piece of a much larger puzzle. And what would happen was we had individuals that might need this service, but they need this service also, and they need this service also. So not only did the person know of the three services, the services knew where to refer other individuals to other services. Next, Dr. Burks talks about Medication-Assisted Recovery Anonymous, or MARA. We're working with a a large number uh, to build MARA, Medicated-Assisted Recovery Anonymous, um, as a in their community or at least help us advocate for it. 
by talking about the medic medicated assisted treatment, we have actually went through our communities to talk to our congregations about what it looked like. Here are the people that were serving. I'll tell you, Greg, it's been an enlightening. Uh, I would like to visit your podcast again in 12 months to talk about the progress we've made with Medicated Assisted Recovery Anonymous. I think that it's one of the best things that could have ever been created um, because it gives an open fellowship to individuals who can talk about, you know, that they still have to take medication. Uh, I myself, I do support individual paths to recovery. I think that individuals need paths to recovery, and I don't think it's up to me to be able to tell somebody yes or no when they're trying to find their freedom. I asked Dr. Burks to share some of their success stories. And I wanted to share one really closely with you. You know, we have a, an area uh, in Stewart County, Tennessee, Dover, Tennessee. It's one of our more rural areas uh, that did not have uh, resources. Now, they had an anti-drug coalition, prevention coalition. The, I myself, uh, my, the faith, I'm the, I am the Office of Faith-Based, um, and Dr. Lloyd was here with me at the time. He was here in our office at the time, uh, but we decided we were gonna we were gonna talk. We we're gonna start targeting the areas that didn't have anything. They didn't have any um, any long-standing um, step studies that had been there. You know that they, that stood the test of time. And obviously, when you go to more rural areas, that happens. Uh, but we went up with our anti-drug coalition and, and had a community meeting pulled in some partners, and we pulled in a few of our local churches. Uh, the local churches, I sat down with them and had breakfast, uh, and we sat down and talked about what what it would look like to become a recovery-friendly community. Well, um, the, the, for the most part, the community actually was recovery-friendly, but there were a lot of resources that weren't collectively impacting their community. So we ended up connecting with a small ministry, um, and it's called Hands and Feet Ministry, uh, the pastor, his name is Ben Robertson, uh, and Ben came and met with us. He met with my team, uh, Project Lifeline, and we all sat down to talk about what it would look like uh, to start um, some type of um, long-standing recovery meeting that's going to stand the test of time, and it's going to be a constant resource. Well, that was about three and a half years ago. Uh, Hands and Feet Ministries grow, grown into a thrift store uh, that gives individuals who have been through the criminal justice system it, it's an employment program. Uh, they also have a celebrate recovery that they have that they have uh, for people that are in the jail and out of the jail, uh, and they serve many people in their community from a community standpoint. They have a, an open meeting. They have Celebrate Recovery, and they also have an NA meeting in the community as well that they're connected to. So that's one of our success stories. We went in an area where there was nothing, and then now we have uh, a ministry uh, that has grown. If your community would love to start or have a conversation, feel free to contact me or contact my office at any time. Yep. And my, you can contact me at M-O-N-T-Y, Monty.Burks, B-U-R-K-S, Monty.Burks at TN.gov. Uh, just shoot me an email, and I'll, I'll call you right back. I work with the other states across the United States, and we've shared our toolkit, and we work hand-in-hand -hand with other states as they built or started to build their faith-based initiative, and to bring the congregations in as an equal footing partner uh, in serving their communities. So, what have we learned? The faith-based initiative that began in 2014 in Tennessee has connected more than 3,240 people with the treatment that they needed for substance use disorder. Also, this new faith-based recovery initiative has certified over 380 new recovery congregations. Their faith-based recovery initiative 
has also provided more than 3,200 Lifeline Recovery training events. With so many people questioning their faith today, the Faith-Based Recovery Initiative represents a rare opportunity for congregations to reinvent themselves as certified recovery congregations. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.